Welcome to Redemption's Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption's Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. Good morning. You have no idea how happy I am to see people's faces, especially your faces. Thank you for all the prayers and all the texts and all the messages. You, Many of you know my family has been quite ill, and I'll actually talk about that a little bit this morning, uh, over the past month. But we are better now, and we are back in the land of the living. We even went and watched a movie yesterday. If you have not seen Disney's Encanto, you should. It's good. It's really good. The girls enjoyed it. If you've got kids, they'll enjoy it. So go see it. Well, um, in 1646, that's a great way to begin a sermon. In 1646, England was at the height of another civil war. Um, This is not the one with William Wallace and Braveheart. That happened like 400 years before this. But the Church of Scotland and the Church of England wished to bring about their respective national churches together in the height of the civil war in order to try to form more unity within the church. Pretty good idea. Therefore, representatives or divines from both churches gathered in a synod to construct and write what we now call the Westminster Catechism. They made a long form and they made a short form. The shorter uh, catechism is 107 questions and answers, so I don't have any desire to remember the long one, and they are meant to instruct the believer on truths about God's nature and the practice of faith. The first question of the Westminster Catechism is fairly well known, um, and uh, as long as I preach, it will continue to be well known because I mention it about every sermon I've ever written. The question is, what is the chief end of man? The answer to the question is that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, this is our third week of Advent, and we, along with many of the other churches around the globe, are taking a focus on the virtue of joy. So you might see why I chose this catechism today, why I chose the first, and in my opinion, the most important question in the Westminster Catechism. Because in it, we are instructed that we have one purpose, We exist to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, you might sit there and go, Clayton, you just contradicted yourself. You said we have one purpose, and then you went on to say to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's two things. So do we have one purpose or two purposes? Well, I'm going to submit to you that we actually do only have one purpose. The purpose is to glorify God, and the way we do that is by enjoying him These are not two separate things, they're one thing, a what and a how. Our purpose, glorify God. The way we do it, enjoying him. So, those of you who are familiar with the pastor John Piper, um, would probably, and familiar with his teachings, would probably be um, familiar with this concept, and and he actually has a quote, he puts it this way, his his summation of this catechism, I like it, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. There are a few mottos 
in my walk with the Lord of almost 15 years now that has served me better than this one. See, my purpose is to bring God glory. The way I do that is to find my full satisfaction in him. But is it, is it possible? Is it possible to find my full satisfaction in him? I mean, what does it even mean? Enjoy God forever. What does it mean? Find my satisfaction in him. My hope this morning for us is that we walk away a little bit more equipped to answer that question and to actually practice it and experience it in our lives. Now, I realize that we belong to a Acts 29 incredible Bible-believing exegetical teaching church, and I started today's sermon not with a passage from the scriptures, not with a chapter in verse, but rather a catechism that comes from the annals of church history. So I realize I'm walking on shaky ground, right? I am relying on church tradition, and that may not fly very well in a church like this, so I've got to be careful. So lest I make that mistake of simply accepting this catechism to be true, I think we should probably examine the scriptures to judge whether or not it is true. So let's start by simply asking the question, is it true that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever? Is that statement true or is it just some fancy wording that some old guys back in the 1600s came up with and wrote down for us to quote and try to maybe brainwash us or something? Well. I think we should just examine the scriptures. And in order to do that, I think the most intellectually honest way wouldn't be to just start pulling random verses from the Psalms or from you know, other books of poetry or from the prophets or from the, the gospels or even, even the epistles. I don't, I don't think that would actually be intellectually honest and serve us well. I think if we're asking the question, why do we exist? The best place for us to look is the creation account. Stands to reason to think if we're wondering why God created us, why don't we look at the story where he created us and just simply see what he says? I think that's the best and most honest place for us to begin. So we're going to do that. We're going to take a look at Genesis 1, 26 through 31. We've actually, ironically enough, spent a large portion of our time in Genesis this Advent. I think that's very interesting um, as a matter of fact, the Advent readings that I've been reading, like the first 10 readings were all from Genesis. So this is incredibly interesting to me that God has had me in this book this season in our church. Genesis 1, 26 through 31. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you, every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit in it with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And all the beasts of the earth, all the birds of the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. 
and it was so. God saw all that he made, and it was very good. And there was morning, and there was evening on the sixth day. I did that out of order, actually. There was evening and then morning. That's not a small mistake. Sorry about that. Perhaps, for some of you, what I'm going to suggest is a bit of a stretch. But in my mind, it could not be more clear. The fact that God chose to make us in his image means that he chose to impart onto us the ability to perfectly reflect his nature and his personality to the rest of creation. As a matter of fact, he even went so far as to give us authority over the rest of his creation. Now, notice I say authority over creation, not authority over him, authority over his creation, something he gave us. He actually entrusted us with his very reputation. When the rest of the world looks at you, they will see me. When we begin to think of our creation in these terms, it becomes incredibly easy, at least for me, to make the statement that indeed our chief end is to glorify God through our very existence. If you can't see it through that scripture, maybe this argument will, or maybe this example will help you a little bit. My wife's a professional photographer. Some of you knew that. Big portion of her business is family portraits. She loves them. And why do people get family portraits? Well, for some, you know, sometimes it's a special event we capture some moment in their life. But for the most part, that's not the case. Let's face it, most of the time, we want to just get images of our family so that people can see us and so that we can capture what we look like in a moment. They're usually planned, they're usually composed, and then trust me, she spends hours, they are processed like crazy. They're images that reflect our glory to other people. That may feel a little bit like a stretch for you too to go there, but let's face it. Why else would we just simply take our images and put them on social media, cards, frame them and put them on walls in our room? We want to display the beauty and the splendor. And that's a good thing. We want to display the beauty and the splendor of our family. Now, these images... They don't have any glory of their own. They're only an image. The only glory they have is the glory that's imparted on them by the subject that they are capturing. Otherwise, they're just ink. They're just pixels. They're just splotches of color. But they're more than that, aren't they? You and I are more than that. We're not just ink. We're not just pixels. We're not just splotches of color. We're not just particles of dust and matter. We're not just flesh and bone. We have been given an image to carry. We're not the thing itself, but we do reflect its image. 
And therefore, our purpose is only to bring glory to the subject that we're an image of. Just like those photos that hang on our wall. We get to be the visible image of the invisible God so that all of creation can see him. That's our purpose. So I think we can with confidence say that the first part of the catechism is true. The chief end of man is indeed to glorify God. But what about the second part? Is the way that we reflect and glorify God truly by enjoying him? And now you see where we're getting into joy a little bit more. Well, I answered the first part by Genesis 1. I'm actually going to answer the second part with Genesis 3. But there's a little chapter in between called Genesis 2 that we're going to talk about for just a moment. Genesis 2 is a summary of the creation account of man and woman. It goes into a little bit more detail for us. And what we see is this. God takes a little bit of dust, forms Adam out of it, right? God takes this man and he says, I got work for you to do before the fall, mind you. I've got work for you to do, Adam. It's going to be fun. You're going to take care of the entire earth. <laughs> wow, it's a big job. Um, I've got work for you. You're going to need a helper. Let me bring you a helper. Here comes Eve. Adam sees Eve. Whoa. Whoa, God, this is amazing. She's incredible. These two know each other fully. The Bible says they were naked before one another and unashamed. Some of you, that might be a little uncomfortable and weird. To me, it's beautiful. Fully naked, fully known, nothing between them. Nothing between them, nothing between God. It's perfect. Very good. This work that they engaged in, of taking care of the earth, they enjoyed it to the fullest. They enjoyed God to the fullest, and God was glorified. It was very, very good. He is perfectly glorified through their existence. Then what happens? Genesis 3 happens. This is a massive tragedy. We really sometimes gloss over this without giving it much thought. This is a massive, massive, massive. There's, there's not a bigger tragedy that's ever happened than this. This is the worst moment in human history. And we've had a lot of bad moments. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, 
They realized they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves because they were ashamed. I don't want you to know me anymore. I want to put stuff between you and me, between God and me. Now again, for some of you, what I'm about to suggest may be a stretch, but I don't believe it is. Up to this point, Adam and Eve were perfectly glorifying God with their lives, and they were enjoying unfettered fellowship with him and each other. This was based on a proper understanding of who he was, who they were, and what that meant. They got to enjoy the fruits of the earth fully, but then something else caught their eye. It was an idea. What if God's holding out? What if there's something more? All of a sudden, they weren't satisfied. What if there's something more than God? Matter of fact, what if being God is attainable? What if being God is desirable? Let's not be too hard on them. Are you and I so different? I mean, come on. Would you rather be God? Or would you rather be an image of God? Would you rather be a photo? Or would you rather be a living, breathing thing? It's not so hard to see. I'll never know the answer as to why God gave us the ability to make free will decisions to disobey him, but I do know this. It's not his fault. We're the ones who walked away. We made the decision to trade relationship with him for lesser things. We all, like our great ancestors, have turned our eyes upon the things of this world and sought joy in them rather than the one who created them. The moment Adam and Eve started to look for the joy and satisfaction in places other than God and his commands, all they found was sorrow. And they began to bring glory to everything but God. They became thieves. They became faded images of their creator, like a worn out photo that you can barely recognize the subject of. And as their image faded, so did their ability to enjoy God, so did their ability to bring him glory. So, through this really sad story, through this tragedy of tragedies, we see that the catechism in its entirety is true. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But sin and the brokenness that has come along with sin has robbed us of our joy in him. And therefore, we lack now the ability, our ability at least is crippled, to bring him glory. So we are truly lost. We've been given a purpose, but we don't live by that purpose. We've been given meaning, but we walk in meaninglessness. Now, thank God, my sermon doesn't end there. That would be a pretty sad place to end it. It's Advent. You know what that means? The eager awaiting. 
Friends, it's my pleasure, it's my privilege that I get to declare to you what you already know. Joy has come. We're not left in that spot that Adam and Eve end chapter 3 in. Joy has come. Now, that we're a little over halfway through with this message about joy, I think it'd probably be a good idea for us to define what biblical joy is. So here's what I've come up with after scouring a lot of different sources. And, you know, I talked about John Piper. I, I listened to and read a lot of him. I, I love C.S. Lewis. I read that. Of, of course, I consulted the Bible and a lot of older church writings. And here's, here's the definition I came up with. Biblical joy is an emotion that comes out of our soul. And that all saints, all saints meaning you, me, and everyone who's ever believed in the name of Jesus as their Savior, have perpetual access to through the salvific work of Christ because of the awesomeness, goodness, and sweetness of our God. I'm going to read it again. Biblical joy is an emotion that comes out of our soul and that all saints have perpetual access to through the salvific work of Christ because of the awesomeness, goodness, and sweetness of God. Now we're going to spend the rest of this time just unpacking that and what I mean by that. First off, joy is an emotion. There's no way around it. It's a feeling. It's a feeling. Sometimes we call it gladness and happiness. Now when I try to separate those out, it, it becomes a little tricky. And that's because joy is oftentimes accompanied by the feelings of gladness and, and happiness. But I do think there's a key difference. And that is this. Joy is not necessarily exclusive like those other two are. When I think of gladness, when I think of happiness, it truly does carry a connotation with it of the absence of sorrow and sadness. It's kind of hard to be happy and sad at the same time. And you might go, no, I've done that before. Well, maybe we're just semantics here. Maybe, the, maybe our language is different here. But I might submit to you what you've maybe experienced is joy because joy is not necessarily an exclusive emotion. What I mean by that is this. It is actually possible to experience joy and deep sorrow at the same time. It's actually possible to experience joy and deep pain at the same time. Let's, let's look at a mother. You know, let's look at a mother in labor. Every woman I've ever talked to that's had a baby, there's no greater pain you'll ever experience in your life than having a baby. That's probably true. And yet, I've been in the room with one who's having a baby. And there is great joy in the midst of an unbelievable pain. Why? Because they know it's coming. The life that they've carried around in their womb for the last nine months is about to be here. How could they not feel joy? At the same time, great pain. Or imagine, for those of you who's ever lost a loved one, celebration of life can be hard. Undoubtedly, we are devastated and there is great sorrow. And yet as we remember them, we remember their life, we remember what they meant to us, we remember stories about them. 
There's a sense of joy that we got to be part of their life, that they got to be part of our life, that we got to know them. And so we see we have the capacity for joy and sorrow and pain and suffering all at the same time. And this makes it different than gladness and happiness. And this is because joy, it doesn't reside on the surface. Joy resides somewhere much deeper within our soul. It's a good feeling. It comes from deep down inside us. And it's put there. It's put there by the Holy Spirit. Let's continue to process this definition a little bit. I said joy is an emotion in our soul that we have access to or perpetual access to. That is to say that joy is always, at every single moment that you are alive, joy is always available to you if you belong to Christ. We'll talk about why in a moment. But let me explain what it means that you have perpetual access to it. I'd like to begin by looking at Galatians 5.22 through 23. If you are taking notes, you're going to want to be ready because I'm about to fire off a bunch of scriptures at you in succession. Galatians 5.22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now notice that several of the virtues that we highlight during Advent are actually found in this list. They all share the same rule. And that rule is this, that they are a fruit or a gift of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, if the Spirit resides in you, you have access to them. They are yours. There's never a moment that you're without them. Now, that doesn't mean you're experiencing them. They're not automatic. If they were automatic, there would be no reason for the Bible to command us to do them and to walk in them, but it does. And this is where you're going to want to take notes repeatedly, especially joy. Let's just look a few verses up in verse 16 and 17. Paul says to us, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not, or, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. We're told that we have the spirit, but now we have to walk in the spirit. It's not automatic. We can look at Paul in Philippians 4.4. He gives us another command. The command is simple. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, he says it. Rejoice. All right? Or James 1.2. Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Some scriptures, some versions say sufferings of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Or we can even look back at the Old Testament because this command for joy wasn't just for the New Testament believers. If we look at Psalm 32, 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart, or we can look at the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 12, when he's talking to the disciples about the great persecution that is about to become on them. And he says, look, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. 
for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We are obviously, repeatedly, I could have picked 12 other scriptures too. We are obviously commanded to take joy. And we're commanded to do so in the midst of suffering and non-suffering. We're commanded to do so when it's easy and when it's hard. Now, I believe it would be awfully cruel of our Lord to command us to do something and then not provide us with the ability to do it. You can't do it in and of yourself. It doesn't mean he hasn't provided a way. He's not a cruel God. He hasn't deprived us. He has given us a way. He has provided you and I who believe in him with his Holy Spirit. It resides in you. It doesn't come from without. Joy cannot come from any other source than the Spirit of God. Joy doesn't reside outside of the Spirit of God. Remember, though, the flesh is at war with the Spirit, and so are the rulers of this age who reside in the world around us. Their strategies, their strategies aren't always to try to make us think joy is unattainable. As a matter of fact, I think it's rarely to make us think joy is unattainable. Typically, the enemy's strategy is simply to make you look for joy in places it doesn't exist. The desire for joy is an awfully big temptation. It's a pretty big carrot. I mean, like, we all want joy, and that's put there by God. So if we can just simply misdirect where you can actually find joy, then we can be a lot more effective at foiling you, at bringing God glory. Joy does not come from your job. It doesn't come from wealth. It does not come from popularity or success. It does not come from hobbies does not come from some sort of chemical stimulant like a drug or alcohol. It doesn't come from sex. It doesn't come from family. It doesn't come from romance or books or movies or vacations or phones or Facebook or political parties or social parties. Sure as heck doesn't come from sports, especially if you're a Mizzou fan. Joy comes from one place. It comes from the Spirit of God. If we want to access joy, we have to go to the right source. And there, it exists in abundance. The last three weeks have been pretty hard on my family. We got COVID, for those of you who didn't know. We're better now. And I know uh, a lot of you have had to go through it. So I'm not trying to compare our suffering with it, with anybody else's. I'm just trying to tell you what we experienced. And that was that there were times sometimes where it even continues to be completely exhausting and overwhelming, emotionally, physically. It just sucked, quite frankly. One evening, as I was lying on the couch and literally wondering, this isn't an exaggeration, I was, I was, I was sitting there, I was wondering, am I ever going to breathe normally again? Or is this thing going to get me? Like, is this disease going to kill me? As I was sitting there and beginning to despair, my wife, my beautiful, wonderful wife, comes and sits down beside me. And she was pretty emotionally upset by this point, too, because it had just been a long time. And we were just suffering. 
And so she sits down beside me and she just turns on worship music and she just starts worshiping God. And as I'm laying there, I start to hear these words like, in the morning when I wake up, when I lay down my head, I will sing of the goodness of God. Jaira, you are enough. Let the king of my heart be the shadow where I hide. And all of a sudden, I just started to remember to live is Christ and to die is gain. Why am I sitting here afraid? I belong to the king of kings, a child of God. If this kills me, I will be with him. You know what happened? In the midst of my suffering, in the midst of my pain, in the midst of my sorrow, joy started to fill my heart, my mind. It just started to be flooded as I remembered who I am and what has been done on my behalf. Now, some of you may say, okay, really, that's your example? Clayton, you have no idea what I've been through. No idea. I have suffered more in my life than you can possibly imagine. You've never had to lose a child. You haven't had to endure some lifelong disability. You haven't been hurt by those who were supposed to protect you when you were a child. You've not lost a spouse to divorce or death. You haven't even lost your parents. You're right. I haven't. I haven't. I've not been through those sorrows. And quite frankly, they're terrifying. I am so sorry and so sad for each and every one of you that's ever had to experience any of those. That kind of suffering, it makes me shudder. I don't desire that kind of pain. I really don't. So you may be left asking the question, so how could I be happy? How could I experience joy? in my soul after those things? It's a good question. It's a fair question. My answer to you with all the love that I can muster and all the sympathy is simply this, God is more. His sweetness, His goodness, it's more than your bitterness and your pain and His promises are sure. His promises are sure. I hope that I believe that as much then as I do right now. That's why it's important that I remind myself now of the goodness of God. So how do we access this joy? How do we get there to that place in a world such as this? Well, if you'll permit me, I will refer to Jeremiah 29, 11 through 14. This is probably one of the most uh, abused scriptures in the entire Bible. It is used out of context repeatedly. Um, and I am hoping that I'm not doing that here. I don't believe I am. Because what I'm hoping to show you through this scripture is the normative way 
in which God desires to deal with his people. This isn't some prosperity gospel I'm preaching right here. This is an example from the Old Testament where God shows us how he desires to work with us in bringing about his glorification and our good. In the midst of the Babylonian exile, or the midst of the pronunciation of the Babylonian exile, Jeremiah pauses to say something that God is declaring to them. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me. Here's the crux. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. If you belong to him, he has a plan for you and it's a good one. That plan is namely himself. He is our portion. God gives God. There's nothing greater that he can give. God gives God. Our joy and the ability to experience the feelings that come along with it are directly tied and linked to the sweetness of God, which is experienced when we rejoice or choose to take joy in him alone. The disciples, or the disciplines rather, they're not there to enslave you. The disciplines, like reading the scriptures, spending time in fellowship with the body of believers, prayer, worship, solitude, silence. They are there to free you. They're there to give you access to the joy that comes from being with God. Now, you may need help at times, and that's okay. When you've been through some of these deep hurts that I've talked about, you may need help from a pastor, from a mentor, maybe even a counselor. That's all right. You may need help, someone guiding you. Maybe you're young in your faith. Maybe you've never done these before. Maybe you've been sitting in a church pew for your whole life and you can't think of the last time or don't even know how to spend time in silence and solitude, prayer, time in the word. Maybe you need someone to show you. That's great. That's called discipleship. That's encouraged. But regardless, the disciplines that have been given to you and me, that is the way that God has said, here, it's a means of grace. But you know what the disciplines require? Discipline. It's what they require. Discipline requires us usually to give something else up to sit something else aside, and really that's the whole point. This week, when I was driving to work, 20 minutes one way, 20 minutes back, I just turned off the radio. I turned off the news. Every now and again, I'd flip it back on, but as I started to spend time in silence and solitude and prayer with the Lord, just simply asking God, well, can I, can I experience the joy of my salvation today? When I would turn that news on, my appetite for it was super low, and so I turn it back off. Because when I've spent time with the Lord, there is nothing greater, no fix greater 
Sometimes I'd turn on worship music. I'd listen to it as I drove. I would spend time with the Lord. And here's what I remembered. I always have access to this joy, so why don't I access it more? Why do I look for it in other places? Now, I announced earlier that joy has come, and that's true. The truth is that the joy that you have access to is only available to you because of Jesus Christ. You get this, what this whole season's about, right? Jesus came. The baby, the God-man, in the most humblest form, in a manger, in a stable, somewhere on the outskirts of Bethlehem. He came. He was born. He grew like a man. He grew in knowledge and understanding. He taught us to love one another. He taught us to know God. And then he went to the cross to pay the penalty of sin that you and I deserved. He died. He was buried. Three days later, he rose again, and he didn't stop there. He taught more. He preached more. He gave more promises. Then he ascended into heaven, and he didn't stop there. A few days after that, he sent the Holy Spirit down on those who believed in him. And that same Holy Spirit resides in you and me. It is only because of him and through him that we have access to this joy. And that, friends, is something to celebrate. And the band's going to come back up now. And I'm going to finish us off with these thoughts. The work of Jesus Christ is only valuable because of what it achieved. Now, that may sound a bit irreverent, but it is true. God is to be brought glory through our lives. We bring him glory through enjoying him. Because of the sin, we lost access to him. Because there's nothing greater than God, we are truly at a loss. Now, not having access to a relationship with God is only a problem if having a relationship God, with God has some sort of intrinsic value, and of course it does. There's nothing in all of existence more sweet, more awesome, more good than God himself. So not having access to him can only make us sad. It can only bring about sorrow. All other outlets that we pursue for joy can only leave us wanting. And because we seek joy in other places than God, he is robbed of glory. And we essentially, as we essentially call other things, more awesome, more sweet, more good than him. You can try. Solomon tried. Wrote a whole book about it. You know what he said? It's all meaningless. Done it all. It's all meaningless. It's a grasping at smoke. It's dust in the wind. As I try to grasp it, it leaves me. So what's the end of the matter? Just, just worship God. Just follow his commands and be happy. You might think, Pursuing God for our own happiness is somehow selfish. Got a great example for that. So it's from Piper. I'll just credit him with it. When you go to your wife, men, and you say, I want to spend the evening with you. Let's get a babysitter for the kids. I want to spend the evening with you. There is nothing that would bring me more joy and that I desire more 
than to take you out tonight. I want to have dinner with you. I want to talk to you. I want to walk beside you and hold your hand. I want to take you to the movies. I want to go ice skating. I want to watch a show with you. I want to dance with you. I want to sing with you. There's nothing that I desire more. Nothing would bring me more joy than to be with you tonight. Does your wife look at you and say, you are so selfish. You just want to be happy. No. Men, when you say those things to your wife, and I guess correct me if I'm wrong, they don't feel like you're selfish. They feel honored. They feel loved. They feel worth. They feel value. The fact that you chose them over everything else that you could do with your time, money, and affection. That glorifies them. They are truly glorified as you enjoy them. And so it is with our God. When we take joy in Him over everything else, when we are fully satisfied in Him, He is brought joy. So our catechism is true. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The way we enjoy Him forever is by being with Him. And He's given us the gifts of the disciplines to do that. Today, as with every Sunday, we're going to celebrate the joy of taking communion together. It's called communion. It's a beautiful word. It's a beautiful word. We get to partner together in this life and in this work with Jesus Christ. So today, instead of reading 1 Corinthians, as you take the body and you take the blood of Jesus Christ, and you remember him, I'm going to encourage us with Philippians 4.4. Simply says this, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Now the band's going to lead us in a time of celebration and rejoicing in the Lord.